Romans chapter 9, and we'll be reading this evening uh, verses 10 through verse 24 of Romans 9. Romans Romans 9, uh, beginning at verse 10. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by your fa- our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he says, Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? With a thing formed, say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, his holy word. O gracious God in heaven, We do praise you and thank you for your great blessing upon us. We thank you for the truth of your holy word. It is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And Father, as we come to this passage, as we consider this topic this evening, we do ask for your wisdom and understanding because this is a challenging topic and a doctrine that's difficult and can be misunderstood and cause a trouble, and yet it is revealed in your word and it gives your people great hope and assurance. And so we pray that you would give us understanding to see the truth of your holy word through the power of your spirit. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, so far in our treatment of God's decrees... We've defined the important terms and concepts uh, in the scriptures that relate to God's decrees. And last time, we noted how God has surely decreed whatsoever comes to pass, so that his perfect plan and purpose always comes about. Again, this isn't an easy doctrine to grasp, even though it's found clearly in the pages of scripture. God is sovereign. And He truly rules over all things that He's created so that He is truly glorified in everything that happens. 
And there's some who struggle to understand the concept of God's decrees and his execution of them. It at least can't be denied that God has the power and the authority to do as he pleases. But where we often see the most resistance to this biblical doctrine is when it's applied to the salvation of sinful man. And the interesting thing uh, to note about this resistance is that it almost always comes from other Christians. Many Christians, in an attempt to cling to the freedom of the will with which only Adam and Eve possessed, not only end up denying the full effects of the fall, but they also put man in a position where he's more powerful than God. Or, at the very least, where God is fully dependent upon man and can't do anything without man's knowledge or consent. Again, this is hard to grasp. Because as we've seen, the doctrine of God's sovereign eternal decree is so clear in the scriptures, and even when relating to salvation. For example, in Ephesians 1 is a very clear passage that lays out God's sovereignty and salvation, even as we've read here also in Romans 9. But these passages, and we may wonder, why don't people read these passages? Why don't they see it? Well, they're either totally ignored or they're reframed by, by those who would deny God's sovereignty and salvation. And what's even more interesting is that they often have no problem, though, with God choosing Israel in the Old Testament, as we read in that passage in Deuteronomy, His sovereign choosing of, of Israel among all the nations, His choosing of Jacob over Esau to be His own special people. But somehow, when we come to the New Testament... They suddenly reject the way that God has always done things. And suddenly man has a free will that is just as powerful, if not more so, than God's will and purpose. Now some may understand this because you've been there. Many of us have once shared this same perspective. But again, once you see with eyes of faith the truth of God's word about God's decree of election, it suddenly becomes hard to miss. But even though we can grasp the truth, we certainly must be careful that we don't become puffed with pride against our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because there is much about this doctrine that even we ourselves don't understand. Well, this is why we ought to take heed to the very last paragraph of the Confession of Faith uh, in the chapter concerning God's decrees. In chapter 3, paragraph 8, it says this, The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care, that men attending the will of God revealed in His word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise reverence and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. The doctrines of God's decree, uh, predestination, election, and reprobation, these are all some of the most difficult doctrines of God's truth for us. As finite and simple humans, it's challenging for us to understand them. 
These doctrines have been misinterpreted, they've been misused, abused, and even ignored because of their difficulty. Yet despite the difficulty and the mystery that surrounds them, they are God's truth. They are what He has revealed to us in His Word. And therefore we must proceed with both boldness, but also humility. Boldness because we mustn't avoid the difficult truths which God has revealed to us, and humility because we're suddenly faced with the awesome infinite, infiniteness of God and the meager finiteness of mankind. We must also acknowledge that we will not have all the answers to all the questions, that is, the, the whys and the hows. But this difficult doctrine isn't without purpose or benefit. Again, as the confession states, there are several benefits that the believer in Jesus Christ should gain from this great truth. And so first we're going to consider just some of these benefits. And the first one is assurance. The very basis of our assurance of salvation lies in the fact that God has decreed and made this decree regarding our salvation. He's chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless according to the perfect image of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Now, if God has elected us unto salvation by His grace, well, then we have assurance that He will then also keep us. Right? This, of course, is Jesus' teaching in John 10. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And so the point he's making here is that if Jesus calls us and gives us eternal life because we've been uh, uh, chosen by God before the foundations of the world. Like that's God's plan and purpose to glorify Him. Well, then we're safe in the Father's hands once we do come to salvation in, in the course of time. Those whom Jesus calls are those whom the Father has given him. Those thus were chosen by God for salvation. And so we gain great assurance from this truth. But of course, if our salvation rested upon our works, well, then we would never have any assurance. Right? Because we'd never really know if we've done enough. How do you know if you have done enough works to satisfy God in order to merit our own salvation? We can't know. We never really know that we've done enough. We can only try and do our best and, and hope that that was sufficient. And sadly, there are many who are trusting in their works and that's exactly all that they can come to. Well, we just hope we hope that it works out. We hope that we've done enough. But our best isn't certainly good enough. Our best, even our own righteousness, is as filthy rags that are discarded by God. But true assurance comes from the truth of God's eternal decree. If this was God's plan and purpose from before He created everything, well then we can be assured that He will see it through and that we are truly saved. Well, a second benefit of this great doctrine is praise. God's eternal decree of predestination and election should cause us to praise God for His abounding and amazing grace. And think about that. He, he chose you. right? He chose me. 
a sinner deserving of the wages of death. We were his enemies. We were those who had rebelled against him, even from birth. But grace has been poured out upon us. And so we're compelled then to praise God. Now, Reformed Christians who have an understanding of God's eternal decrees and the doctrines of election, well then, they certainly should have the most jubilant and and praise-filled worship. Because we understand that it wasn't us at all. But it was all God. He suffered and died for our sins, enduring the punishment that only we deserved in His Son, Jesus Christ. We should be more apt to understand Jesus' parable of of the debtors. In Luke 7, Jesus says, There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with, with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Well, because of our understanding of God's grace and His sovereign decree of election, well, we understand that we've been forgiven much. And so we should love much. And if we love much, well, then we should certainly praise and give thanks much. Well, a third benefit to this do- of this doctrine is humility. And tied to the others as well. We must always remember that we'll... Um, again, that we, there was nothing in us, right? When God made this decree of election, there was nothing in us that caused God to choose us. And so we shouldn't be proud. We have no reason to be proud. We have no reason to boast. We have no reason to go around and say, oh, we are of God's elect. Much to the contrary, we're called to be humble. And the humility stems from the same source as the praise, because it wasn't us. We had no decisive part. It was the grace of God through the Holy Spirit, which quickened us and brought to life our dead, sinful hearts. It was the grace of God that brought us the gospel through which we heard the voice of the great shepherd. It was the grace of God that gave us the gift of faith to believe on Jesus Christ. It was the grace of God that justifies us and sanctifies us and will ultimately glorify us. Truly, it is by the grace of God that we are saved and that we are being saved. Not by our works, not by our own faithfulness but by the grace of God alone. Truly, salvation belongs to the Lord and not to man. Finally, this great and mighty doctrine should instill in us diligence. Diligence to give thanks to to God in all things for the salvation that He's brought us. Diligence to do and obey all that He has commanded us so that we might then glorify Him. Paul says in Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Now, this working out of our own salvation is not the securing of our salvation, but it is the showing forth the fruit of our salvation. Doing all that God has called us to do. 
Again, not in our own strength, but by the will, uh, but by God's will for His good pleasure with the grace that He Himself supplies. And so it's not our faithfulness that would save us and justify us and sanctify us, but it is God's faithfulness and His grace that is poured out upon us. Peter also notes in Second Peter three, or excuse me, Second Peter one, he says, "Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble." And again, our diligence doesn't establish our calling or our election, but it is the way we show our gratitude to God for what He has given to us. And so, assurance. Praise, humility, and diligence are all key benefits of the doctrine of God's decrees and our salvation. Let us now consider the doctrine of predestination uh, itself. In particular, we'll look at uh, predestination as basically God's decree that He's determining whatsoever uh, comes to pass, and they're broken down to election and reprobation. We're reminded that the ultimate purpose of God's decree is the manifestation of His glory. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of of His grace, by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. And even as we saw earlier there in Romans 9, it is all to the praise of God's glory. Here we see that God's decree of uh, His decree of predestination is clearly tied to the manifestation of His glory and of praise. And this is true whether we're talking about God's decree of election or His decree of reprobation. Election is the choosing of God's elect for salvation, and reprobation is the passing over of others to receive just and deserved condemnation. Now again, this may be difficult for us to grasp. But the scriptures clearly teach that in either case, God is glorified, either by His grace and salvation, or through His just judgment, or through His justice and judgment. Again, in Romans 9, as we read earlier, what if God, wanting to show His wrath, and to make His power known, endure with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Note that God is patient and long-suffering with the vessels that have been prepared for destruction. And by this he is glorified. As well, those vessels of mercy which have been prepared for glory will make known the abundant riches of God's glory. We should also note that this election and reprobation applies not only to mankind, but to angels as well. God has elect angels who do His will. And there are angels who have been passed over who have rebelled along with Satan. Paragraph three, or chapter 3, paragraph 4 of the Confession says, These angels and men thus predestined and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed. And their number is so certain and definite that it cannot either be increased or diminished. Now this basically emphasizes the fact that God's decree is unchangeable. Those whom God chooses to save are truly and certainly saved, and they will be saved in time. Those whom God chooses to pass over are ultimately and justly condemned. 
And Paul points to this in 2 Timothy 2 when he says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And this is certainly a great comfort to us, that the Lord knows us if we're His. Even so, the Lord knows those who are true and those who are pretenders. Yet even the pretenders and the false professors have their purpose as the example of Judas shows us. In John 13, Jesus says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats bread and with me has lifted up his heel against me. And so even those who have been passed over through the decree of reprobation still serve the purposes of God. And those who are the Lord's, those whom he knows belong to him, well, these are his elect. And God has sovereignly and graciously chosen the elect before the foundation of the world, and in time then he draws them to himself through Jesus Christ. But there's an important point to be made here, as we mentioned earlier. Again, the confession in chapter 3, paragraph 5 says, Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God out of His mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works, or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature, as conditions or causes moving Him thereunto. And this simply is telling us that God doesn't make a conditional choice. That is, God's choice is independent of the creature, and resides alone in God's own good will and pleasure. Again, it's all God and not about us. God doesn't look down the card of time and, and base His choice on who will choose Him or, or who is going to, to do good or who will uh, persevere to the end. No. God makes His choice even before any good or evil thing is done in the life of an individual. In one sense, God makes His choice when we are neutral in regards to our actions at least. And this is Paul's point in regards uh, to God's choosing Jacob over Esau, as we read Romans 9. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of work, so not based on whether Esau or Jacob were going to do something good or evil, but on him who calls. That it was said to her that the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so God made this choice before they were even born, before they had done anything. God chose Jacob over Esau. Now this eliminates any accusation of favoritism or unrighteousness of God. Because indeed, He has, uh, his, has mercy on whom He wills, and whom He wills, He hardens. Of course, we're not really neutral at all, though. So kind of neutral in a sense, again, as I mentioned, according to actions, but we're not neutral because of the sin of Adam. That all who are descended from Adam by ordinary generation are born sinful and were born in a rebellion against God. And so really the greater wonder in all this is that God would choose to save anyone because we all are deserving of His just 
wrath, and curse. But God hasn't only chosen his elect unto salvation, but he has also provided the means necessary to bring his elect ones to himself. And of course that is through Jesus Christ, the mediator of God's grace. The means of salvation as well as salvation itself all come through faith in Christ alone. And this is most clearly seen in Romans 8, also known as the, the golden chain of salvation, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. Those whom God has chosen and known from before the foundation of the world, through Christ, are in time called. They're justified and they're glorified. And in fact, Paul, as he's writing this, is so sure and certain that when he speaks of these things happening, he speaks in the past tense as if they've already occurred. Only through Christ does such a glorious and certain salvation come. So God has clearly chosen those whom are His, His elect, from before the foundation of the world, who will in time receive the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. But what about those who aren't of the elect? God has also decreed their end from before the foundation of the world. And we call this decree reprobation. Reprobation is God's passing over others, that is, choosing by His will and good pleasure, even as He chooses those for salvation, choosing by God's good will and pleasure not to save others. Again, the Westminster Confession, chapter 3, paragraph 7, says, The rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of His own will, whereby He extends or withholds mercy, as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. We see here that the overall effect of reprobation is also to exalt God's justice. How can this be, though? We may wonder, how can this be? We might wonder, they've never had a chance, as some contend, and we hear that, kind of complaint all the time. What's here that we must recognize, again, that the condemnation and wrath of God that those who are passed by receive are just what we all deserved. Because of the sin of Adam, we're all guilty and deserve God's just and holy wrath. And we see this during the time of Noah, all of mankind was intensely wicked. Every uh, thought of his heart was evil continually. God graciously, though, chose to save one man and his family, bestowing upon him his grace and delivering them from the flood. Everyone else was passed over. Now, God is an unjust then, when he chose that some sinners to salvation and left others to suffer the condemnation that their sin deserved. And again, some make that complaint, but it's ridiculous. Because we all deserved the judgment. 
The elect surely haven't earned salvation, but we ha- all have earned condemnation. And this serves to magnify the grace of God all the more. But ultimately these things must be placed in the hands of the Almighty God, whose ways are unsearchable and mysterious. And so when addressed with the accusation of God being unjust, Paul simply and humbly responds in Romans 9 verse 19, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? So Paul anticipates the complaints and the objections that we still hear today. And so how does he respond? This way in verse 20, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Would the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And so clearly it's God's right. It's his prerogative to do with his creation as he pleases. We're just the creatures. And so we must then acknowledge this great truth and humble ourselves before the Almighty Creator. The doctrine of of God's decrees as they relate to salvation, predestination, election, and reprobation are truly great mysteries. But we've seen that they're clearly biblical and they're found here in the pages of the Scriptures. And though we don't fully understand them, well, we can still praise God for His glorious grace and His most certain and sure decrees because they do give us great comfort for those who believe and we know that ultimately they all will bring glory to His name alone. Let's pray. O oh, gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to You, Father, for reminding us of this difficult to understand truth and it's hard to grasp and there's many many questions that we may have and that we know others have and yet as we read through these passages we see that it's clear that this is so that this is what you have revealed to us and we are because of our sin nature we always want to exalt ourselves and we always want to put ourselves in control It's hard for us to yield that and to humble ourselves and to acknowledge that you alone are in control. You alone are the sovereign one. And so we just praise you and thank you, though, for the great comfort that these uh, doctrines are to us. They do give us assurance that our salvation is truly secured in Christ Jesus. That there's nothing, no one can pluck us out of your hand. We can't even jump out because you hold us so tightly because of your great love for us, because of your grace poured out upon us. Even when we didn't deserve it, you've loved us. And we do pray, Lord, that as we would also have further boldness because we don't know whom you have chosen or who you are passing over. Certainly there will be some in the church who are pretenders, and there are many outside who are yet your chosen ones and are yet still in need of hearing the gospel. And so we pray that you would give us boldness, even as this doctrine has been uh, really the 
uh, the force that has uh, pushed your people to proclaim the gospel throughout all the earth. Because we don't know whom you have chosen. But we pray that you would lead us to them. That they might hear the truth. And that they might come to you. And bring in the fullness of time. That their salvation would be made complete. In Christ Jesus our Lord. So we just praise you and thank you, O God, for these things. And we ask that you would give us understanding, even though, again, we acknowledge the great mystery it is, but that you would give us wisdom and understanding and keep us humble as well. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.